The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. say we're indeed grateful that you're here this morning. We have a number of people who are visiting with us today, and you're our special guest. We'd encourage you to come back tonight at 7 o'clock when we'll again assemble to worship God. Last Wednesday night, we were studying together in the early chapters of the book of Acts, and I'm going to be discussing some of those chapters today. This morning, I want to focus your attention on some things that are found in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. We need to have the right kind of attitudes if we're going to grow and be as we ought to be as the children of God and encourage the church of my Lord here at Park Avenue to grow, to be a viable force in this community. To bring glory in the name of Jesus as we read in Ephesians 3.21 a moment ago. To demonstrate what God's wisdom is as we read in Ephesians 3 verses 10 and 11. I believe that in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts there set forth some attitudes that contribute to the growth and the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And we want to look this morning in a brief way at some of the things that are found there. Let me suggest to you this morning that we ought to all be interested in the growth of the church. We're members of the body of Christ, so we ought to be interested in the church prospering and doing the will of God and leading lost souls to the Lord. We ought to be working to that end. We ought to be allowing ourselves, as we read in Ephesians 3 and verse 21 a minute ago, to be used by God in His service, to be able to do above that that we think that we're able to do through God if we allow ourselves to be used. These individuals that we read about in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, Peter and John and the church at Jerusalem, were people that had the right kind of an attitude that would cause the church to carry the gospel around the world in the first century. I want to suggest to you in the first place this morning that these men and women who were members of the Lord's church had an attitude of joy and happiness that could be seen within their lives. I want us to focus on Acts 4 and verse 13, a part of our study today, and the latter phrase in the verse, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. I want you to think with me about the occasion of the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. In Acts 3, Peter and John have gone by the gate beautiful. They had healed a lame man. They are brought before the Sanhedrin for doing good. They're being persecuted for the cause of Christ. Adversity has struck the early church. They fold their tents and say, okay, folks, the Lord never told me it'd be like this. I expected life to always go well, and so I'm just going to quit. I'm going to become discouraged, and I'm not going to live the Christian life anymore, and I'm surely not going to go out and teach someone. Well, you know as well as I do, that's not the attitude that they had. There was a joy that was deep within their heart. 
In Proverbs 4 and verse 23, my Bible says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Literally, that passage reads, Keep your heart with all keeping, for from it springs the issues of life. I suggest to you today that the world ought to be able to recognize within our lives that we don't live like they do. And that we do not allow things to affect us like the people of the world. The first chapter of the book of James, the account says, beginning of verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' trials. Now, if you want a good illustration of that, just simply turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. And see the apostles as they indeed counted a joy to be persecuted for the cause of Christ. In the Philippian letter, in the fourth chapter of that letter, in verse 4, Paul said rejoice, and again I say rejoice. In verse 9, he talks about being trained or literally going to school and says that we ought to have the same characteristics of heart that he had. In verse 11, he said, that whatever state he found himself, therewith he had learned to be content. Paul's writing this letter from a prison cell. And yet he can find joy and peace and content. The attitude of the growth of the church is an attitude of happiness. We ought to be happy because we have the best life that there can be. John 10, 10, Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. In the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, you'll find that the gospel's gone to Samaria. In the 8th verse says there was great joy in that city. Why? Because here are those who have the remission of their sins. You can't help but read the 2nd chapter of the book of Acts and understand the joy found there. When it says in verse 46 concerning these who had obeyed the gospel of our Lord, and they continued dating in one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat meat with gladness and singleness of heart. There's an attitude of a Christian. He has an attitude of joy, an attitude of contentment, an attitude of happiness, and that's seen in their lives in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. Because of the very attitude that these people have, they're able to influence others with the gospel of Christ. In the second place, not only do you have an attitude of happiness that leads to growth, you have an attitude of love that leads to growth. I don't think you can read the fourth chapter of the book of Acts without seeing the love that permeated between brethren. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, the multitude of them that believed were one heart and one soul. Neither of them thought that all of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus had said to his disciples that he would give them a new commandment. All the Old Testament taught them that they were to love one another. But here was a new love, a new love in its kind and quality. And he said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, 
that you have love one for another. Here's the very badge of New Testament Christianity. The impact that the gospel had beginning here when they faced persecution in the book of Acts came about because the love that they had was evident. It could be seen by men. They could come to know and understand that these people are different from others. They're interested in me even though I persecute them. Here are New Testament Christians. They have the badge of New Testament Christianity. It's evident in the lives of the members of the church at Jerusalem. Great love that they have one for another. Here's the first problem that plagues the church. Up until this time, we do not read about any problems that they face. But now here in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, they begin to face persecution. Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church that was plagued with problems. 1 Corinthians. You read that letter and you'll see throughout that letter that there are a number of problems that they face in the church at Corinth. Some of them need to repent. They're lost. They're not in fellowship with God any longer. They need to restore that fellowship with God by pleading the covenant of God's grace and the blood of Jesus as New Testament Christians. And yet, I think the heart of the First Corinthian letter is, Paul says, love. First Corinthians 13 is the solution to problem. Now, that's not the kind of love that we often talk about today, but that's agape love. That's love that John 14 says in verse 15, keeps God's commandments. That's love that John says in 1 John 4, 1, is not grievous. That love that they had one for another permeated within them an attitude of growth. And it made people of the world look at these New Testament disciples and say there's something about them that's different. There's something about them that I like in my life. There's something about them that I need. Something about them that I want. And it led men to obey the gospel. It opened doors of opportunity. In the third place, as you read the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, it's quite evident, as I mentioned Wednesday night, that the attitude of Christ is in the lives of these disciples. In Acts 4, verse 13, it says, And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. What is a Christian anyway? A Christ I am. One like Christ, Brother Marshall Keeble used to say. It's an individual who's just like the Lord Jesus Christ. They took knowledge of these men that they'd been with Jesus because they could see Jesus permeating their lives. They could see his attitudes. They could see his actions. They're not the same group of men. You saw in the latter part of the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
They're not those disciples that were scattered. They're not the disciples, one of them mentioned specifically here, cursed and swore. He's not like that now. He's been penitent. He's allowed the attitudes of Christ to be his attitude. Philippians 2, 5, have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. He's followed in the footsteps of Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 21-25. That means he's mimicking the life of Jesus. He's writing his life right over the life that the Lord had. And I want to say to you this morning, all love and all kindness, unless that's our attitude, we won't go to heaven. We'll be lost. That's what the Beatitudes are about in Matthew 5. And when you get down to Matthew 25 and the Lord's picture of judgment, unless we've got that attitude of the Beatitudes, which is the attitude of Christ, we're going to be lost. We're going to be told, Apart from me I never knew you, ye workers of iniquity. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They had his attitudes. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. They had the attitude of Jesus in the fourth place. The church grew in the first century, and it's quite evident in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, they had the attitude of encouragement. Read that chapter. Look at what it says, for instance, in verse 23. Here are Peter and John let go, and the account says that they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice in one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which made heaven, earth, and sea, and all that in them is. Here are those who are trying to encourage one another. Look again at the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. Verse 35, beginning, talks about those who took their possessions and brought them and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And they gave them to every man as they had need, or made distribution as every man had need. But look at verse 36. And Joseph, who is by interpretation Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. The American Standard says, the son of encouragement. Literally, that great word means to call to one side, to call to one's aid. Here's a man whose very name and his outlook and his attitudes characterized him as being a son of encouragement, one who would encourage his brethren. Hebrews 10:24, And let us consider one another and provoke one another to love and good works. Here they are, and they face discouragement. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 28, the Bible says that the children of Israel were not able to enter the promised land because our brethren have discouraged our hearts. 
If there's ever an opportunity for God's people to be discouraged, here it is in Acts 4. Well, we've obeyed the gospel. We're Christians. Do you mean we've got to face persecution? Look at all these bad things that are happening to us. How are they going to overcome that? Oh, they're going to encourage one another and provoke one another into love and good works. They're not going to tear down one another. I can just see some of them as here's Peter and John and they come back and they say, Peter, if you had to heal that man, we wouldn't have had all this persecution. Look what you've caused here. Look at all these problems we got. You shouldn't have done that. Look at what you've got us into. They were encouraging one another. In the book of 1 Corinthians in the 14th chapter of that book, in verse 24, the latter phrase in the verse says, let all things be done unto edifying. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11, Paul said to the brethren at Thessalonica, that they were to comfort one another and edify one another even as ye so do. Those brethren were edifiers. They built up one another. They encouraged one another. Church growth comes when we have that kind of an attitude toward one another. We don't tear one another down. We're not bent on destruction, but we're bent on encouragement. We're bent on building up just so happened that I opened a bulletin this morning that a friend of mine sent, Brother Ronnie Messeldine, preaches down in Pensacola, Florida. This is the article Ronnie had in his bulletin this week, Building Up, Not Breaking Down. There are some in the world who are demolition experts. They know just exactly what to do to bring down a huge building or a mountain of rock. They have been trained and are very proficient in placing explosive charges in the right places to be the most effective. Then with a flip of a switch, the push of a plunger, the things that have taken years to build come tumbling down. They're demolition experts in the church. Oh, yes. You say, but oh, no. Oh, yeah, they are too. They've been trained either through years of self-teaching or after being taught by some other negative individual who's also a demolition engineer. They don't tear down buildings. They don't tear down bridges. They are terribly destructive nonetheless. They know just the times and the places to place a discouraging comment, a sarcastic dig, an unwanted or unneeded or unsolicited criticism, and in seconds, the work that has been built up over the years is torn asunder and a congregation comes tumbling down. The demolition expert then walks around proudly, walks away with his chin up and his chest stuck out saying, I told them the damage will never be repaired. The heart, the soul, the work, and the stigma are scarred for life. But God teaches us to build up rather than to tear down. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, whereby 
we may edify one another. Romans 14, verse 19. Paul told the young preacher Timothy, we ought to spend time and effort in those things that bring godly edifying which is in faith. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 4. My mother and my father taught me and their parents taught them before. If you can't say something good, don't say anything. Were they saying, if you can't build up, certainly don't tear down? Yes. Jesus said, it must be, needs, or it must needs be that offenses come. But woe unto that man to whom the offense coming. Don't be a demolition expert. Be an edifier. I think that's the spirit of Acts 4. They were encouragers. They were interested in one another. And they did everything that they could to encourage one another and build up the work of the church, even though the time was discouraging. Even though there was the problem of persecution that they faced. In the next place, you can't help but notice the spirit of unity that there is in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. I read a moment ago where it said in verse 23 that they went into their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. Verse 24 said when they prayed, they lifted up their voice with one accord. Verse 32 said they were one heart and one soul. Neither of them thought that all of the things they possessed was his own. Look at the unity that's there. Unity must be for church growth. You can't be divided in spirit and have the proper kind of church growth. There's a passage in the Old Testament that I guess scares me about as bad as any passage I know of. And every time I read it, it causes me to tremble. In the sixth chapter of the book of Proverbs, it says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him. Proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that divides us wicked imaginations, feet that are swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. God hates that. When God hates it, I better avoid it. That's something that God hates. I read the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. It's been commonly called by many God's platform for unity. There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father Ball, who's above all and through all and in you all. We read those great verses. And we see in that the very principles of unity based upon the one faith that God's given us, the one system of faith that Jude 3 says to contend earnestly for. But truth alone will not provide unity. Truth must be placed in one's lives in order to provide real unity. And I've got to preach at Talladega in October on Ephesians 3.21 and the hymn be glory in the church. And I'm going to take this fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians for that lesson. 
Look at what provides unity. Unity composes two things, truth, and you can't have unity without truth, but it also takes attitude. Look beginning in verse 1. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation whereunto you were called with all lowliness and meekness with long suffering, or bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. One can't help but see that when you read Acts chapter 4. There are brethren that are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. They're united in heart. They're united in mind. They're united in soul. Because of the unity of Acts chapter 4, you'll see that many men and women hear and obey the simple New Testament gospel. Finally, I want to give you one more principle, and with it we'll close the lesson. When you turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, you see an attitude of faith. Think of it. Here are brethren who are facing difficulty for the first time. They had faith that caused them to obey the gospel as their faith now going to falter and fail as they face persecution. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul said, We walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is the ability on the part of a Christian to see God's word through the difficulties and problems that he faced in life. We studied in adult class this morning all the minor prophets. It's hard to get 12 minor prophets in in 45 minutes. But in the book of Habakkuk, in the second chapter of that book, in the fourth verse, it says the just shall live by faith. I mentioned that the word just is quoted in the Roman letter, and it's the basis of the Roman letter, when in Romans 1.17, Paul quotes that statement to Joshua live by faith. You turn to the Galatian letter, and it says the just shall live by faith. That's the basis of that letter. But the emphasis is on shall live. And that's what happened here. These people took their faith and they lived by it. As they faced a problem, as they faced difficulties, they allowed their faith to cause them to live by it. They live their lives according to God's promise. Faith is composed of two elements. Mr. Thayer says that the word faith means trust co-joined with obedience, and that's exactly what you have here. These people realize that God's word was supreme. They say in Acts 4.12 that there's none other name given among heaven wherein you must be saved. They were willing to listen to the authority of God. But they weren't willing to just listen to it and tell others that you've got to follow it. They lived by it. They allowed it to be a part of their lives. And thus, as they face this persecution, they're threatened and told, you're no more to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus. They said, we cannot help. But say what the Lord said say. We must obey God rather than men. We've got to live by faith. We've got to allow faith to be a part of our daily lives. And when we do, we'll live by